Hey guys, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, future registered dietitian, here to spread the scientific knowledge in the worlds of fitness and nutrition. Today, we have a controversial topic. We're going to talk about ketogenic dieting and insulin resistance. I have an amazing guest. He's a registered dietitian, and he has so much knowledge, so get ready to learn. Okay, y'all, today I have Andres. He is the owner of Vive Nutrition. He is a registered dietitian, and I'm going to have him introduce himself, tell him about your his background and what sparked his desire to be a registered dietitian, and then we have an awesome topic for you guys. Awesome. Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you, Lacey, for having me on your podcast. Um, my name is Andres. I'm a registered dietitian here in the state of Florida. Um, I live in Tampa, and I have a couple things that I do. Uh, mainly, like I, like you said, I'm the owner of Vibe Nutrition, which is essentially an educational and coaching platform um, that basically tries to communicate nutrition messages and coach people on on basically optimizing the way that they live and perform. Um, my main areas of focus is sports nutrition, so I work a lot with professional athletes, um, NFL, MLB, um, and that kind of athletes right now. Um, but also I am the director of nutrition for the Applied Science and Performance Institute, uh, which also is called ASPE, which is located here in Tampa, Florida, which is basically a research institute and performance institute that deals with a lot of professional athletes coming here to train, preparing for the NFL combine and things like that. And we have a huge area of uh, ketogenic research, which we'll dive more into uh, our po- the podcast today. Um, but essentially I run a lot of, uh, you know, ketogenic coaching and a lot of nutrition coaching for um, for the facility here. So that's a little bit about what I do. As far as like what be, by sparked my interest of becoming an RD, I actually wanted to be a doctor. Believe it or not, I oh, grew wow. up in yeah, I grew up in Venezuela, so um, down in South America, and um, always wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid. In fact, you know, I had I remember my mom like gave me a bunch of like you know those little like gear when I was a little kid, uh, like a stethoscope and everything. So I grew up dreaming about that. Um, that dream kind of got crushed at the time that I didn't really get to, to med school, but they told me that they said, well, you could actually go into this, this school, like nutrition school, which at the time I was like, what is that? Um, <laughs> but I actually went into the school and they said, you can transfer over maybe like one or two semesters after it's like, Oh, perfect. And this is the done deal. Let's do it. So I did that, but I actually never looked back. I realized that I wanted to prevent disease. I didn't really want to treat it. And I figured that the best way to do it was actually through like the first thing that we need to focus on, which is our nutrition and what we fuel our bodies with. And that's exactly what sparked that interest. And I've always wanted to to work with athletes. So, and I realized, like, well, there's this thing called sports nutrition that you could also do. So I'm like, okay, I'm done. Like, this is it. Um, so, and obviously one thing led to the other. I moved to the United States, completed all my, uh, my degrees. Um, I got my master's in exercise science. And right after that, I dived, I dove into the trenches of sports nutrition and never looked back. And here I am. That is amazing. No doubt. Every single thing happens in our lives for a purpose. And it sounds yes. like you have found your passion, which is the key in life. Uh, absolutely. 100%. I wouldn't really trade it for anything else. That's amazing. Okay, so I just have a quick question. What got you? What made you say, "Hey, sports nutrition. This is what I want to do." A great question. So I I grew up playing soccer for my whole life, um, and I always was really interested in in understanding exactly what ways that we could find for athletes to 
to be better. So I remember when I played, like, you know, feeling tired all the time. And honestly, I grew up, like, you know, eating well, you know, back, mm-hmm. back in South America and, like, that Latin country, like, my, my parents always kind of instilled that in us. Like, you know, we didn't necessarily have a whole lot of nutrition background and science and those different things, but we always did the right things as far as, like, you know, how we fuel our bodies. Um, but I've always, in- I was always interested in understanding how we can actually optimize and even improve the way we perform the field. So, and then when I wanted to be a doctor, I figured, well, I wanted to do sports medicine so I can kind of like work with specifically athletes in ways that we can optimize it the way they move. Uh, so I wanted to go into orthopedics. And then after that, when I realized that sports nutrition was my thing, then I'm like, okay, I, I can optimize the way they actually perform and the way they live and the way their health is. So that's exactly how everything started to to fall in place for me as far as like my career in sports nutrition. And, and that's exactly the, the route that I wanted to take. That's amazing. No doubt that nutrition plays a key role in performance and recovery for athletes, and it can make or break them in how they do. A hundred percent, yes. Okay, so let's dive into today's topics. First, we are going to go over a little bit about the basics. So what is insulin? What is insulin sensitivity um, and insulin resistance? And then we're going to dive into the controversial topic of ketogenic diets. So do you want to start off by describing insulin and its roles in the body? Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that's a great topic. And it's one one thing that has come very close and dear to my heart recently because of all the research that we've done in ketogenic and metabolic diseases. But, you know, the short of insulin, insulin is a I call it the master regulator um, hormone, basically, of the body. Mm-hmm. It's saying we got to understand that hormones are basically like messengers. Um, insulin, what it does is essentially sends a message uh, that is triggered by a response on what we directly what we eat. So I'm going to give you the example. So we have a piece of bread um, that has carbohydrates, and carbohydrates break down into glucose. When glucose elevates in the blood, we have to maintain a certain level. Like That's the body's like to keep homeostasis or balance. We need to keep a certain level at bay. So whenever our levels are kind of outside of that range, then that triggers that response from the pancreas to release that insulin uh, to be able to I, the way I describe it is like, okay, insulin comes as like a little messenger. It comes and knocks on the doors of the cells and say, hey, open up. We have too much blood sugar right now flowing in our and in, in, in basically our, uh, our blood. So we need to make sure that some goes in. Can you please let it in? So that's essentially what insulin does. So it opens up the doors to like like signals like that, the, the receptors, what I call the doors to the cell to say, okay, um, blood sugar come in. So levels actually stay at bay and then everything goes back to normal. So that happens every time that we eat something um, as far as like really what insulin does and the role that it has in the body. Okay, yes. And for my listeners, I just want to make a point real fast that insulin is a metabolic regulator. It's a hormone. It is not just for carbohydrates. It also is a response in regards to protein. Um, Correct. And it's not just going to deposit into fat cells, those carbohydrates into fat cells. It is made to help maintain those blood glucose levels. And it's also important for building muscle. Correct. And and to survive. Mm -hmm. So I love that little door analogy. Yes. That's amazing. That's a good way to actually describe it because it's a way that I kind of explain it to a lot of my um, my clients and the people that I, I teach because it's kind of like an easy way for them to understand exactly how, how, how everything works as far as that and we're to also allow them to understand the differences between insulin resistance and sensitivity as we as we use that analogy and we're probably going to go back and circle back around that so, so I can describe it better. 
Yeah, so insulin resistance would be knocking on the door and nobody answering. Correct. So that's exactly what happens. So if we dive more into like insulin resistance, really what happens is, so whenever there's like, you know, now we're focusing only at this time on, on carbohydrates. When we have um, chronic intake of, of carbs, and I'm not saying at any given point throughout this this, this uh, conversation, we're going to talk about carbs being evil because they're not. Um, we're just basically talking about the different kinds that they have. And then chronic consumption and whatever our, our uh, basically carbohydrate intake is, is chronically elevated and we're having too much of the wrong kind, which essentially what it's doing, it's like spiking your blood sugar um, exponentially and doing it several times in the day. So basically you have your pancreas working over time trying to uh, basically stimulate more insulin and more insulin and more insulin to be able to uh, to keep up with like that, that sugar responses that you're having in the body. And what happens with insulin resistance is sometimes those doors are just, they decide they don't want to open. So essentially insulin comes in and then those receptors in the cell, which again, by, based on the analogy is the doors to those cells, they just simply don't want to open. And basically what you see is like elevated blood sugar levels, uh, you know, throughout, you know, obviously the time. And that's exactly what the problem relies on um, and what insulin resistance is. Basically, you don't really have like, the ability to to keep levels uh, at bay or keep them balanced throughout, you know, the day. And that's really what kind of can lead to certain conditions like chronic diseases like diabetes, for example, which is the main one and the biggest problem that we have here in the U.S. Yeah, it really is. Now, insulin resistance can be multifactorial, so it is not due just to, you know, pancreatic dysfunction or high consumption of um, sugar-sweetened beverages or one exact thing. Um, yeah. So we definitely need to make sure in regards to the whole entire world that we say that it is not just what you eat. There's also a lot of causative yeah. factors, but, you know, we have type 1 diabetes, we have type 2 diabetes, we have metabolic syndrome, PCOS, all these conditions kind of centered around that insulin resistance. So let's talk about right. insulin sensitivity and how we can combat insulin resistance. Yeah, so insulin sensitivity is essentially the opposite. So it's, it's basically um, the the increased ability of the cell to really like just more like, the ability of those doors to really open up when they're supposed to. Um, and as opposed to insulin resistance, it's essentially when, you know, when blood sugar, like one of the things that basically triggers it is like, you know, we have some sort of carbohydrates, proteins or fats, and then basically insulin gets elevated uh, because of the blood sugar responses. So those doors, like basically insulin is opening um, up those doors and like I said, you know, blood sugar responses is more controlled. So the better insulin resistance that we have or the increased insulin sensitivity, um, sorry, I, I take back. So the better <laughs> insulin okay. sensitivity that we have, sometimes I get confused with both words, um, the better that we're able to control our blood sugar levels uh, throughout the day. Now, what do you suggest in regards to the best methods for creating insulin sensitivity? Because I know on my end, what I like to do is I focus on workouts, I focus on what they're going to eat and when, and then sometimes, if needed, go the supplementation route for people who have, you know, crazy high blood glucose levels. Absolutely. So, um, like you said, the first and the most research way to to increase and improve insulin sensitivity is through exercise. As you're increasing your heart rate, and and you obviously are using energy throughout the body 
breaking down glycogen stores, which is like the way that your body stores carbohydrates. You know, all those different things are increasing the ability of the cell to be able to uptake that glucose because it's needed for energy. So think about the more that you're kind of going into really kind of churning that machine, that, that metabolic machine to really produce more energy, the better it is at basically using the, those carbohydrates or the, you know, blood glucose through glycogen breakdown and everything else is, is just functioning better. So and the opposite lack of exercise and you know being sedentary it will cause the opposite thing because it's just like you know your energy machine like you know your metabolic machine is just not very is not used very efficiently at that point and that's really what kind of leads to that on top of things like you said like a multifactor uh, a lot of different factors like you mentioned you know so being sedentary like you know the food that you consume lack of sleep um, many different things like that definitely would have a, a big influence. So definitely exercise would be one of them. Um, the ones, the things that I researched the most besides exercise is definitely um, increased fiber intake because mm-hmm. um, one of the things with fiber is it slows down like that blood sugar response. So it's not, you don't have those like huge spikes. So one of the things that I teach my athletes and the people that I work with is, you know, think about, you know, for example, when you have something sugary. So um, when we talk more about carbohydrates, so your blood sugar uh, spikes up and then usually brings, it comes down kind of like a rocket. So um, one of the things that we need to kind of start focusing on, if we pair up those kind of carbohydrates and sort of like fibers, of course, uh, adding also things like protein and healthy fats, what we're really doing is like that spike is not at elevate as elevated and we don't really have that, that same effect as far as like, you know, blood sugar responses so it's another way that we can improve insulin sensitivity so so far we have exercise we have fiber the ones that I'm more interested in right now the ones that we research the most are things like fasting and obviously low carb high fat approaches and the way that 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 usually works is like for example from the fasting perspective which is what I'm more fascinated in um, it's essentially when you lower your blood sugar levels through a very very minimum state it gets to a point where the body can control that a lot better and it's essentially the way the body was meant to survive like years ago, like, you know, centuries ago. When you go for a long period of time without consumption of any kind of food, your body's going to try to adapt to the situation that it is on. When you keep your blood sugar levels very low, insulin is not highly released. And obviously, that can imp- it's another way that you can improve insulin sensitivity as far as that. And ketogenic, which is of the ketogenic diets, which is the last one I wanted to mention, it's essentially the way I describe keto. It's a way to mimic the the same effect of like starvation or fasting, and not to go into kind of extremes. But it's essentially um, the increased ability of your body to tap into fat stores um, in the in a way that you can keep your blood sugar levels at bay and keep it on a, on a constant level, so you're not really having those like huge spikes throughout the day, and it's more control. So it's another way that research shows it definitely has improved um, insulin sensitivity and the ability of the cell to to basically use glucose more efficiently. Yeah, you put those in a very nice way. And before we dive into the ketogenic diet, I do have one note I wanted to talk about fasting, just because I am team intermittent fasting. Um, and awesome. it definitely has helped for me. And I've even had like, you know, my clients, it help in regards to morning hypoglycemia. So, you know, you have a breakfast, you say, hi, say you have a high carb breakfast and then you crash. It, it really prevents that crash yeah. in the mornings and creates those stable levels. Mental clarity is just fine. Um, so definitely benefits. I really would love to see more research done um, specifically on blood sugar levels, but 
hopefully we'll get there. I did have a question for you in regards to, for your athletes, do you do anything like fructose plus glucose together to help get in glucose and, okay. So, I mean, the whole multiple transporter uh, research, when it comes like one of the things in athletes and, and, you know, there are different kinds of approaches. I usually for athletes, I go with the what the most research really shows mm-hmm. because I don't want to dive into something new that doesn't really have as much research per se, because especially when we're dealing with professional athletes, like this is what they do for a living. We don't really want to do something that uh, would not benefit them. So as far as like, you know, using different kinds of approaches with athletes, when it comes down to multiple transporter carbohydrates, really what the whole idea out of this is to really improve or increase like the availability of glucose for energy for the athlete at any given point throughout, you know, to improve performance. So we know that there's different kinds of glucose transporters in the gut. Um, and then the idea is for us to basically use different kinds of carbohydrates that go into those different transporters so we can increase the availability of glucose in the blood for use um, for, for energy, basically. So we definitely do that in things like, you know, there's the sports drinks and, and there's different kinds of ways that you can kind of like, you know, have that effect um, to basically increase that availability of energy. Okay, that's awesome. That you, and I love that you do that. Um, I definitely have I've never dabbled dabbled with it for myself um but I think it has kind of a context for physique development as well um so let's dive into the keto diet you already described what the keto diet is Mm -hmm. um I think we definitely need to make a division that ketogenic dieting is not low carb dieting so can you tell a little my listeners the benefits of the keto diet the differences between low carb and keto and the clinical relevance okay that we have for that perfect so first of all like you know if we go more dive into a kind of better definition of what a ketogenic diet really is is uh, the way we describe it here is it's a diet in which or or a, a dietary programming in which we really push the body to produce ketones, which are the byproducts of fat oxidation um, in a natural way without supplementation, without anything like that, through obviously the programming of macronutrients um, by increasing fat intake and reducing carbohydrate intake for basically the body to really tap into fat source through a process called ketogenesis. Uh, Ketogenesis produces ketones from fat and that makes you enter in a state of what we call ketosis. Ketosis, by definition, it's only elevated ketones in the blood. It doesn't really have anything, you know, it's nothing too crazy. And the way we measure that is basically through basically your ketone levels that you had in your blood. 0.5 millimole, and we can talk a little bit more details on that, um, is basically what defines ketosis. And when you're in a state of ketosis, we basically say that you're um, sort of following a ketogenic diet when it's kind of chronic. Clinical relevance, it's actually pretty big. In fact, one of the things that we do here at ASPIA, here at the Applied Science and Performance Institute, and one of the projects that they have is developing this thing called ASPI Medical, which is treating certain conditions with ketogenic approaches. And what conditions am I talking about? There's a few different ones. So for example, neurological diseases, we're starting to understand that the brain, brain metabolism is highly reliant on glucose. And there's a lot of neurological diseases 
where glucose metabolism is impaired. When you take glucose out of the picture and you provide an alternative source of fuel for the brain, then these things can actually start to go away or be treated in a better way. So things like, for example, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, things like um, concussion treatment and uh, TBIs and things like that. But also on the other metabolic disease spectrum, we can also talk about cancer applications and we can talk about diabetes type 2. Um, and how ketogenic can actually improve those conditions. And there's a lot of research now coming out really showing the benefits on, on and the clinical relevance that ketogenic diets can have on health um, and improving outcomes of, the, of, this, of these diseases that, that I just mentioned. Yeah, there's hands down like a list of disorders and issues that keto could potentially be useful mm-hmm. for. And I think for me, in regards to the clinical world, the the one that stood at the two that stood out for me was ischemia and trauma. So the yeah. brain oh, yeah. potentially mm-hmm. using those ketones as fuel over glucose. So and that's really hard for research, you know, making that happen and trying to figure out what's more beneficial because what you're going to do is you're going to do the best treatment for that individual to help get them where they need Correct. to be, but there may be a potential better treatment. So it's always a catch-22. Um, now let's specifically talk about the ketogenic, ketogenic diet for type <laughs> 2 diabetes. Absolutely. In fact, yeah, that's that's great because like actually I think it's a couple of weeks ago, there's a study that came out um, on basically they studied a, a large group of people um, on basically they put them they put them on a ketogenic diet. But what it really really what I liked about this study that is different from a lot of others that have been done on type two diabetics is the fact that they had support and education. So for us dietitians, mm-hmm. it's important, you know, and you would understand too, that the, the importance of education as far as, you know, nutrition, different nutrition approaches. So what this study looked at, they basically put two different groups. And one of them was uh, a group where basically they receive a ketogenic diet, but they have nutrition coaching with a registered dietitian for an entire year. We're talking about almost, I think it's like almost 200 people. Um, versus they put another control group, but basically they have the, the continuum care for like the, the basically the American Diabetic Association guidelines mm-hmm. as far as like how to treat um, type 2 diabetics. A lot of these guys had, or these people had um, uh, medications and they were being treated with things like that. Others weren't. And they basically, the primary outcomes that they looked at was the hemoglobin A1C, which we know is, is an average of like the, the blood sugar levels that you've had for the past three months. So they look at that. And the secondary outcomes, they look at things like um, CRP levels, which is a a marker of inflammation, um, triglyceride levels, lipid profile, and all those different things. The results are astounding. Like they're they're insane because what they found for the group that was treated or that they were given the ketogenic diet, basically they found a reduction of almost like 1.8% on their A1C. So that went from 7.3, which is considered like, you know, diabetic, to almost like a six point, I believe the, the number was uh, clo- uh, under five, which is almost like pre-diabetic mm-hmm. level. Wow. It was insane. And we're also looking at, you know, things like uh, CRP levels, so markers of inflammation, inflammation went down, mm-hmm. um, lipid profile improved, so HDL levels, which is a good cholesterol, actually increased. Um, so many different aspects of that was definitely even better than the typical um approach that we have to to for diabetic treatment as far as you know diet and and medication and the most amazing thing about it 
was that medication users actually reduced. And almost 94% of all participants that, that, that were part of the ketogenic program actually eradicated or eliminated completely their medication use and their insulin use uh, throughout this process. So it's one, one of those things that you look at and you're like, okay, like what, what am I getting wrong or like what, what did we get wrong? And I'm not saying that we did it wrong in the past. It's just we're just saying that there, there may be a better way to, to really manage this problem that we have in the U.S. because of the prevalence that we have of diabetes, diabetes here in the, in, in the United States right now. Oh, it's it's definitely type 2 diabetes has been skyrocketing. Considering yeah. Medicare and Medicaid and insurance reimburse for it now, we know that it's an issue if they're going to, yeah. you know, give a little leeway in there. Now, with that study, did they control for protein intake and training at all? So they didn't really put them to, to through exercise. Uh, they they did control the what they basically looked to to basically to kind of look at the uh, the compliance for the diet. They measure ketone levels throughout the entire time, and they had I think it was monthly visits with a dietitian and and to to kind of guide them through the process of ketogenic. Um, they basically gave it an outline and, and we'll talk about protein recommendations for, for, for ketogenic, but they control as far as like giving them the recommendations as far as what to do. And we could see that they were being compliant because the levels of ketones in the blood were elevated at the end of the study. They did markers, I think at 70 days and then not almost like a year after. And they, they were still seeing that, you know, these people had elevated ketones in the blood. Uh, so definitely that's one thing. But I don't think they were actually given any exercise recommendations. So even if that would have been something that would have added, I'm sure it would have been even better results. Yeah. I, and they control, did they have, compare it to the control group for the normal diet? As far as what? Uh, the uh, the exercise or protein or where are you specifically um, asking? Controlling for the, um, the, type two, the normal type 2 diabetic diet. So the carbohydrate yeah, so controlled. The one thing that I think was um, one of the flaws of the study that I think they should have done was that they didn't really specify details on what did they do with the other group. What they okay. say, basically, they, they describe it as con uh, continued uh, diabetes care, which is basically they were doing the same thing they were doing before, uh, medications. and But I don't think, for example, they had... Um, you know, um, as many nutrition sessions as they did with the ketogenic group. So what I think is they, if they could replicate, because actually this study has been extended for five years, so they can kind of look at the long-term implications. Oh, my God. That's yeah, amazing. So that's how important it is. Yeah. So so if, if they could actually do something different, I would actually put the same kind of level of support on the the group that is re receiving the the continual care that we're receiving before basically the the american diabetes association um guidelines that they have and see and really truly compare if maybe the education aspect of things is really what made the difference um you know that's really kind of a way that you would definitely tell if, you know the differences and 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 true see the, the changes uh, in there Oh, yeah, for sure. And I would definitely want there to be like a control for protein intake and then yeah. there be a control for weight loss because as we know, you lose that weight from ob being obese or being overweight. You're going to have reductions and you're going to have better parameters of nutritional markers. You're going to have decreased inflammation. You're going to have decreased blood glucose, decreased triglycerides yeah. for the most part. So I would love to see that. Yeah, they but of did course actually, they wanted they to focus. Them. 
Yeah, they talk a little bit about weight too. There was like there was a, a, a huge percentage in weight reduction. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly the results in comparison to the control group, uh, but definitely it was one of the things that absolutely influences the, the the whole thing, you know. And that's the one thing that we're still trying to figure out is like you know the weight reduction or like you know the the metabolic aspect of ketogenic and and you know low levels of blood glucose like really that kind of causes or maybe just a combination of everything really that uh, has this implication and, and really has these effects. Mm-hmm. Now, what do we need to do in regards to protein on keto? How much is too much? Because as we know, protein can turn into glucose. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and this is a lot of people, because like, usually when someone starts on Google ketogenic diets, you know, the, the first thing, or, or they look they, they look at low carb, and I guess like this is where you can kind of have that, that distinction between low carb and keto, is that keto you have to control a moderate intake you have to have a moderate intake of protein and the reason for that is because protein has and we talked about it earlier has the ability to to produce glucose through a process process known as gluconeogenesis and when protein levels are too high then you are using some of that protein to like i said produce in the in the absence of of carbohydrates and when your glycogen levels are too low your body like i said is going to try to find alternative fuel sources and whenever it found it's like oh wait there's like a lot there's a lot of protein in here so we can break it down mm-hmm. to produce that glucose then it defeats the purpose of what you're doing a ketogenic diet for and that is like the biggest mistake that a lot of people make now if you ask me how much is the protein intake, it really depends on a couple of things, which is how active you are. So depending on the training intensity and the type of exercise that you're engaged in, your protein levels can actually be higher. So for example, as someone like you, that I know you do a lot of you know resistance training and, and you prepare for shows and things like that, your protein intake can be higher. So I usually look at it based on percentages. So um, in my personal, like you know, in my case, for example, I also do resistance training and I can get out my protein up to 24 to 25% of my total caloric levels. Um, and that's usually a, a level that I feel comfortable at. Um, for some people that are, are more um, sedentary or they don't work out as much or they do they don't do as much resistance training or muscle damaging exercises, they can probably keep their protein closer to 20%. For therapeutic purposes, when we're really trying to dive deep into ketosis, then some people can even go into levels of 10 to 15% uh, of, of total protein because again, they're trying to increase their fat as much as they can. You know, We're talking about almost 70 to 75% of your uh, total calories coming from fat, sometimes even higher in therapeutic approaches. But that's usually the the sweet spot as far as protein in healthy populations. I would say probably anywhere between 18 to 20 to 25% is really like the, the kind of like the sweet spot within, within that range. Yeah, so very highly individualized and all about okay. how a certain person can take that protein. And I think the carbohydrates amounts per person also has to be highly individualized because we're all not the same. Now, what are your thoughts on the different types of fats to include in the ketogenic diet? That's a great question. So so this is the biggest thing that a lot of people say, well, keto, I had to eat all these fats, but I thought all fats the bacon. <laughs> Yeah, all the bacon. And, and I think a lot of people get that all wrong because they think keto is bacon, eggs, and cheese. And it's a lot more than that. So, um, in fact, some people have even asked me, can you be vegan and follow a ketogenic diet? And I say, absolutely. It's challenging, but it can absolutely be done. 
Why? Because people fail to see the important, the other kind of important mono and polyunsaturated fats. For example, um, avocados are a big staple of mine. Uh, different kinds of oils, olive oil, coconut oil, um, grapeseed oils, and things like that. We're also talking about coconut. Coconut is a huge staple, especially in people that want to kind of follow some sort of like a plant-based and keto at the same time. Coconut is super high in fats, and we'll talk about the difference between saturated and, and, and unsaturated. Um, but essentially, like there are many various sources of fats that can be included as far as that. Now, the differences between saturated and unsaturated. So what we're coming to understand, and this is a very controversial topic, that saturated fats are not necessarily you know, the the biggest cost of, you know, cardiovascular diseases and things like that, particularly exactly. within ketogenic diets, because what we've seen in, in the research that has come out this far, that is basically that saturated fats can increase, they can increase cholesterol levels, but they usually you have to look a little bit more with a magnifier glass, what kind of cholesterol is it really increasing? Because we need to look, for example, at LDL levels, which is like, you know, what we call like what people call the bad, bad cholesterol. But we also need to understand that there's different kind of particle sizes within that. Exactly. So what we are understanding is that saturated fats can increase those big fluffy particles that are actually flow better through the blood and not, not responsible for blood clots and all those different kind of, you know, uh, thrombic kind of instances um and then that is the one thing that i that we're starting to understand and that even can increase so what we're seeing in ketogenic diets is like your hdl which is your good cholesterol levels actually start to increase in some of the research um that that we've done and, and some of the research that i've read um is that that's really kind of like the main effect now does this mean that you can go all out with the bacon i'm still you know a person that believes that you need to have a balance between that i still think you have to you need to have a good omega-6 to omega-3 balance mm -hmm. um, you get your, a lot of your omega-3s from fish sources and things like that um and obviously getting in a lot of those different sources of fats from avocados and coconuts and nuts and seeds that's really what my my motto is when it when it comes down to uh, coaching people that are wanting to follow a ketogenic diet now what are your thoughts on polyunsaturated fats because there's a lot of talk in regards to oxidative damage I think it really depends on on the kind um, of of basically the sourcing of the polyunsaturated fats that you're talking about. You mm -hmm. know, because we get a lot of the polyunsaturated fats mainly from a lot of oils. Um, I'm a big fan of choosing more oils that are not as refined or processed. So, for example, exactly. I try to avoid in, in sort of sort of way, you know, canola oils, vegetable oils, and things like that. Uh, simply because, again, you have that kind of high risk of oxidation, which at the end of the day, really what causes is it can it can lead to more inflammation in the body and, and a lot more, like you say, oxidative damage and, and DNA damage at the, uh, that in the long run can definitely affect your health negatively. So I try to choose more like I think they, they have their place in because there are sources of polyunsaturated fats that doesn't necessarily have to be oils like that. But I think a combination of all those three is really it's just basically trying to find a sweet spot between all of them. Yeah, and I just want to make a note, and I know this is totally off topic, but in regards to clinical nutrition and how we do tube feedings, it bothers me to a great extent seeing all these formulas with a high, high amount of omega-6 refined vegetable oils. Wow. And it's it – because I'm just like that's – 
inflammatory. We're feeding them inflammatory food. Yes. We should be going the omega-3 route. And I know at the hospital I'm at, which I'm not going to name on here, but there might be a better formula with more omega-3s, and they won't give it to them because it's more expensive for them. And I'm like, it just should not be that way. They need the omega-3s. Yeah, you mentioned a very important point. So, and again, this is, again, one of the things with the food industry, especially in the U.S., is like, it's, it comes down also to, to see what's cheaper to mm-hmm. produce and what's cheaper to provide. So polyunsaturated fats, well, if you think about it, you know, the biggest production, for example, of, um, you know, corn and almost in the entire world is actually United States. So, so they're, you know, corn oil and then you're looking at, for example, like canola, which has a huge production. So when you start incre- adding things like, for example, like coconut oil, coconut oil doesn't, it is, it's not even produced in the United States. So why would the food industry... Um, benefit from supporting an oil that is not even produced here because it's, I guess it's not going to support like the food industry and like that, that economic factor. So at the end of the day, there's a lot of red tape when it comes down to to the kind of foods that are recommended. And I, I, I ask myself, like, you know, what are we putting here first? Like, are we putting health first over the cost or we're we putting, you know, well, this is more expensive. So we're just going to give this to them. And then we're putting health second. So, so that is like key things and, and key controversies that we need to start looking at and and us or, or the people that are trying to go against what really has been instilled for the past, you know, 10 to 20 to 30 years, it's really to trying to change that, that thought process and really like have maybe a change of policy to, to make sure that we make the proper changes so we really focus more on health and prevention rather than treatment. Yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And I know the Farm Bill for 2018 will be coming out, and I'll be really interested to see who gets the most money. <laughs> yes, that will be very, very interesting. Well, it's actually one thing that I just wanted to mention too, Lacey, that um, someone sent me yesterday. So the USDA is calling for public comments, and I'm not sure if you uh, come across that, but it's a very rare instance that, that the USDA basically is asking the public uh, which I'm not sure exactly how that works, to comment on specific changes that they wanted to make to the dietary guidelines for Americans for two, t- 2020 and to 2025. So essentially they're asking specific topics, for example, the, the comments that they want to, or like the topics that they want to comment on is low carbohydrate intake or low carbohydrate diets. They're looking at also at saturated fats. Those are the, the main ones that I, that I saw. And there's coalitions in, in different kinds of places where they're trying to push, obviously, the, the, the research to basically show USD, US, USDA that, hey, listen, you, you may have to you may want to make some changes to your dietary guidelines so people are not scared of things that they should not be scared about, a.k.a. fat or, you know, like or they could be there's a room for a low carbohydrate intake or those kind of conversations that really need to happen so people are not scared and they're more educated on these areas. Yeah, I really hope they look at that. And the thing is, because it's like a hit or miss, I know they have the Dietary Guidelines Committee, and then they make the guidelines. And I know the committee in 2015 had made certain recommendations, and they shut those recommendations down. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one last question I have before taking up too much of your time. What are the uses and the benefits to common supplements like MCT oil, coconut oil, and ketone supplementation? Okay. I'm going to give you the short on that because we can literally have an entire podcast on each one of those (laughs) options. So um, MCT oil stands for medium chain triglycerides. And medium chain triglycerides are basically, imagine, very short chains. They're very small ones. 
that they usually bypass the same pro the, the process of absorption in your gut. Um, and it's a lot different than, for example, if you were consuming a mono or polyunsaturated or even like a saturated kind of fat, like more like a longer chain. So the way they do that is like, you know, they basically just bypass that process. So um, if, if I kind of dive just very briefly into how usually fats are absorbed. So fats are basically kind of enclosed in this little capsule, which we call micelles. That's mm -hmm. they go into basically a specific kind of like canal within your, your body to be able to be metabolized. MCT, on the other hand, doesn't really go through that process. It goes straight into the liver to be delivered to all other uh, tissues in your body to be used immediately for energy. So it burns down to, to basically ketones when you consume it. Coconut oil, it's basically 70% of the, the oil that you f will find in there. It's actually MCT or medium chain triglycerides. So that's what they go hand in hand. Um, in fact, MCT is usually produced from either palm kernel oil or from coconut oil. So that's what you would see out there in like products that they're selling. Uh, so definitely one recommendation that I would give for, for people is like they can include this kind of options. Um, not necessarily on ketogenic diet because MCT has even research to show that it can improve satiety and it can actually make you eat a little bit less because they basically make you feel fuller for longer. Um, ketone supplementation is... It's a whole different animal because now we're, we're starting to understand that we can produce ketones in a lab and we can um, put it in a powder form. And these ketones, when you take them, basically the way that they're being advertised is like they can increase or they can put you in a ketosis state and they can. So I have basically taken my ketone levels uh, before um, I take this uh, supplement and then after. And then you can see the ketone levels will actually rise. So the question is, like, you know, are they beneficial or for only people that follow the ketogenic diet or can they be beneficial for um, other people that are not necessarily doing that? And the, the, the answer to that is, like, it can be beneficial for anybody, in my opinion. I think there's just not enough research yet to really support it. Mm -hmm. But we're really looking at, for example, the effects of just having ketones flowing in your blood at any given time as far as the energy, cognition, because of, like, all the neurological aspects of things, you know, I I can probably give you one example of, you know, we had a guy that, that came in here and had uh, with Parkinson's disease, we basically tested their cognitive abilities through basically this little vision test that we do with them. We gave him, we test him a baseline and then we gave him a little supplement packet and then we test him again. And if you see the results of this, like on a little graph that kind of shows, basically they had to like look at different points in like a little graph. When you look at those results after one single packet or those like, you know, ketone supplementation, it's unreal. Like the, the improvement that someone with Parkinson's disease could have. So when you look at it that way and you see, you see all these improvements, just basically by just giving one dose of that, I'm like, okay, I want to see more. I want to do more research because mm -hmm. I, I think there's something big in here. And I think that's the reason why there's a huge push for that, especially on, you know, the supplement world. But a lot of people are capitalizing on it too much. I, f I feel like there are companies that are truly caring for really what this can mean. Um, and definitely there's a lot more that's going to come out of that. That's very yeah. interesting. And I'm so excited to see more research come out. Well, Absolutely. thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and for your time. I have one last question before I have you just tell my listeners where they can find you. Um, so... I have my question yeah, here. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest piece of advice for those wanting to optimize their health and their diet? The biggest piece of advice I would say is 
to to seek for reputable sources of education, I believe that people need to understand like how to navigate nutrition. It's not as easy as black and white. Mm-hmm. And and the key thing is, is they need to start looking for edu- like trustable educational resources that that will really guide them to to know exactly what it is. Because the problem that we have is like it doesn't it, it everything everybody's different. And what works for, for you, Lacey, doesn't work for me. And what works for me doesn't work for you. So personalizing that aspect of things, it's it's a it's a trial and an error type of thing. So I think that my biggest advice is to seek out for education. I don't usually tell people like, yeah, eat more of this, eat more of that. Because again, I don't know them. I don't know every one of your listeners. Exactly. So it's hard to make a recommendation based on, you know, like, oh, what's out there? Because we just need really need to understand exactly what's going on with that person. So seek for education, seek for professional advice, uh, or find reputable resources to really understand really what's going to be the the best approach for you. No, I love that. The biggest piece of advice really could be find your individualized approach that's going to work for you. Yes, correct. Because I know I know the benefits of a ketogenic diet, but I love my carbohydrates. Like you are Correct. not taking them away from me. So, <laughs> so it's yeah. all about what works for you. Okay, thank you so much for your time. If you could tell my listeners where they can find you, they can find you on Instagram, I know, because that's where I found you. Fantastic mm-hmm. resource, guys. So can you tell my listeners where they can find you, reach out to you for coaching, or just find all your information? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually uh, launching my new website in uh, the next uh, couple of weeks or so. So you can find me there at www.vive-nutrition.com. It's V-I-V-E-nutrition.com. Um, and I'm going to have uh, coaching opportunities and I'm going to have the, what we call the BV Nutrition Academy, which is going to have courses. In fact, I'm going to have a releasing on launch date and you can definitely go in there and sign up for it. A free um, intermittent fasting guide that people can download, uh, which I, I'm sure, Lacey, I'm going to send it to you as soon as I finish it. Because oh, I'm holla, that's exciting. <laughs> Um, but definitely you can find me there um, or obviously my Instagram is where I'm most active and I post a lot of infographics of different kinds of topics, not only ketogenic. That's the one area that I focus on, but um, definitely on everything nutrition. Uh, so you can find me at Vive Nutrition or V-I-V-E Nutrition on Instagram and we can chat over there. Awesome. Gosh, I know those infographics take a while to make. So huge props to you. I love them. (laughs) So guys, check them out. And I'm very excited for those courses because definitely a trusted resource. Okay, thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a fabulous day. Thank you, Lacey. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye.